1: Thrusting space science into the audio dimension. This is Naked Astronomy. How can we measure some of the most energetic events in the universe? This month, we're exploring the science being carried out by NuSTAR, a new high energy X ray telescope. This is Naked Astronomy with me, Ben Valsler, and with Dominic Ford. Also, coming up,
2: we'll find out why being outside the Goldilocks zone might not mean there's no chance of life, as it seems other sources of heat may make even more planets and moons good
1: places to look for biochemistry plus we've got more answers to your space science questions so if you've got something that you'd like us to tackle email astronomy at scientists.com. supported by the stfc this is naked astronomy for more information look us up online at nakedscientists.com forward slash astronomy
2: Back in June, we reported the launch of the Nuclear Spectroscopic Telescope Array, or NUSTAR for short, a new space-based X-ray telescope, which will be able to observe some of the most violent and energetic objects in the universe, including black holes and active galactic nuclei. This month, we're joined by Professor Andy Fabian of the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge, who is a collaborator on the project. Andy... I gather that New Star can measure higher energy X-rays than previous X-ray telescopes. What exactly does that mean?
3: What it means is it has focusing X-ray telescopes which work over an energy range which goes about 10 times higher than has previously occurred. And that's because the mirrors are made in a special way. The surface coating is made out of lots of thin layers of heavy metal and carbon, and that way, there's what's called interference, which enables the focusing to work at much higher energies. And, and these are photons with energies of thousands of times visible light photons? That's right. These go from thousands to tens of thousands. And they're close to the kind of X-rays you get when you go to the dentist and have an X-ray. So what kind of astronomical objects produce these very energetic photons? It tends to be things like uh, matter falling into black holes, so from the matter swirling around black holes, um, from energetic jets that come out from that sort of process, pulsars, uh, exploding stars, that kind of thing.
1: So we're talking about relatively rare events, rather than looking at visible light, which is constantly pouring out of all of these things. We're looking at quite rare and discrete events, that can perhaps tell us a very different story of the universe?
3: Yes, the visible universe is mainly powered by uh, nuclear power, centres of the sun, for example, nuclear fusion. What we're looking at here is uh, gravitational power, where you're getting matter falling down into the deepest potential wells in the universe, namely black holes, and they tend to produce these high-energy emissions. So does that mean
2: if I would have X-ray eyes and I would look at the sky in X-rays, I
3: would see a very different picture? Yes. Of course, if you had X-ray eyes and you're at the bottom of our atmosphere, you wouldn't see anything at all. It's not that you would look at me and see a skeleton. It just wouldn't see anything at all because the X-rays are absorbed by the air. But if you were above the atmosphere and were able to put on these X-ray glasses, you, you would find the universe would look very different. Some of the brightest stars in the sky like Betelgeuse in Orion is completely undetected in x-rays and yet there would be objects uh, like the Crab Nebula, the Crab Pulsar would be very bright.
2: And I guess the sky would be much more variable with these violent and and sudden events happening.
3: Indeed, even the ones that are fairly steady and persistent also would flicker. So if you were to make a planetarium, that were an X-ray planetarium, you couldn't do it with just constant lights. You'd have to have quite a lot of them twinkling away.
2: So would it just be point sources of light, or or are there nebulae in
3: X-ray astronomy as well as invisible? There are nebulae. um, In the the sort of main X-ray band, which is where we've been working mostly before, then we can see the gas between the galaxies particularly in clusters of galaxies, they, they're glowing. But when you go to the new star band, they tend to disappear. What you see then are uh, the few nebulae around, like the Crab Nebula, where a rapidly spinning object, say a pulsar, actually has produced a wind of very energetic particles, which causes a glow over an extended region. So that kind of thing is being, will be observed as well. Now, in terms of astrophysics, what can we learn scientifically about these objects? Well, we can learn, because we're seeing the complete spectrum of them, we can learn a lot there. With regard to exploding stars, we can uh, look at uh, radioactive elements. You can actually see the characteristic X-ray lines they produce. You can, you can work out how they're powered by radioactivity, which is what actually causes them to glow for a while after their formation. Also uh, with New Star we can look through absorbing material and so you can have as much material as say you would get in a paperback book in front of you but the x-rays can go through that and um, quite a lot of the massive black holes in the universe are lurking behind this kind of absorption of this kind of gas and so we don't really have a good census of the massive black holes in the universe and uh, there's something called the X-ray background, which um, was discovered in the first X-ray rocket flight back in 1962, 50 years ago, that peaks at, we call it, 30 kV, a particular energy. And uh, we haven't yet found the objects which give rise to that background. And hopefully a new star will solve that problem.
1: You've mentioned a little bit of the history there. How has X-ray astronomy evolved throughout the last sort of 50 years? Well, it
3: started off with a rocket flight by Riccardo Giacconi and his colleagues. He won the Nobel Prize 10 years or so ago, um, 50 years ago uh, this last summer. This rocket flight just went up and down and uh, they had Geiger counters on it which detected X-rays. And with that, they discovered SCOX-1, which is the brightest persistent x-ray source in the sky and they also detected a, a whole background of x-rays x-ray astronomy then went on for the next um, nearly 10 years with rocket flights and i as a student participated you know had a couple of rocket flights and um, then there was the first x-ray satellite launch namely a satellite with x-ray detectors on And uh, that was called Uhuru, that's Swahili for freedom, because it was launched from Kenya, actually, because they wanted to launch as close as possible to the equator. So they used an oil platform off Kenya to launch it. And that was uh, extremely successful and discovered um, many of these X-ray sources in our galaxy, X-rays from clusters of galaxies uh, and other things.
1: So it's actually a very young type of observation.
3: Absolutely, yes. And uh, in terms of orders of magnitude of sensitivity improvement, it's gone almost as many as the optical band has gone, only it's done it in 50
1: years rather than 500 years. So what's been the driver there? Has it been having the technology to do it or has it been advances in the scientific theory that has then told us where to look and how to look?
3: Well, a combination of all those things. I mean, being able to have telescopes has been enormously important. And it turned out that in the 50s, uh, a man called Walter, in wanting to make an X-ray microscope, had solved how you focus X-rays. And it's done in a similar way to an ordinary optical telescope using a parabolic mirror, excepting you, you can't have it face on. You've got to use the outer part of the parabola we use what's called grazing incidence reflection. X-rays tend to be absorbed if if they go straight at something, but if they come in at a glancing angle, then they can bounce off. And the good analogy for this is skimming a stone on a lake. We've all done that. And if you get the angle right, it bounces. But if you make the angle too steep, it gets absorbed. And that's exactly the same for X-rays. And as you go up in energy, the X-ray energy... So this angle has to be even more glancing, has to be smaller and smaller. And generally, we've not been able to go above 10 keV. The big breakthrough with NuSTAR is using these special interference type optics, um, you can now go a factor of 10 higher and still get decent um, angles of uh, incidence for the uh, x-rays.
2: Now, NISTAR is a quite incredible shape. It, it's got the optics on one end of a 10-metre mast. Yes. And then the receivers at the other end of, of that mast, which is about the height of a house. <laughs> I guess that, that's to do with this problem of focusing the X-rays.
3: Yeah, although Chandra, XMM, the, the satellites, the orbiting observatories have been there for more than 10 years, they also have 10-metre type focal length and so the way X-ray telescopes work is, as you describe it, you go along and you have the mirrors and you get the reflection there and then they, as it were, almost go through the mirrors and 10 metres further down they go on to the detectors. So because it's a glancing impact with Correct. that mirror... You can't have very powerful lenses. Correct, yeah. And indeed, you can't have lenses at all, just to stress that, because a lens would absorb the X-rays. You can only work with mirrors in the X-ray band. But the interesting thing with New Star was, unlike the other ones, New Star was launched with everything folded together. It was a Pegasus launch, as they say, in a small rocket that was slung horizontally under a large jet. Again, they want to launch as close to the equator as possible. That's because the particle background in orbit is low. And it was so it was launched from an atoll uh, west of Hawaii. And you always launch these things to the east to make use of the spin of the Earth. And so it launched horizontally. And then the, when it's away from the plane, they then light the motors, automatically, of course, and it roars off and gets into orbit. Uh, but so this very compact satellite was launched like that. And then it was sort of wound out. There's a nice little video you can find on the web of the mirrors moving out as the whole structure, there's like a very folded up Meccano-like structure that unwinds to make the 10-metre optical bench, as we call it, to space the mirrors away from the detector. Now that, I think, was back in June. What's the state of the telescope now? Is it taking scientific data? Oh, yes, yes. I was at a te- on a telecon to do with it last night, and everything's looking really good. It's had over 100 days in orbit, and now it's doing regular observations. And um, I can't tell you all in detail about the observations, but it's, it's really working very well. The background is very low, the imaging is superb, uh, and the spectra are very exciting.
1: Thanks, Andy. We will come back later on in the show to hear a bit more about the science that New Star is doing. But first, we've invited Tamala Masil and Imogen Whittam along to join us. They're both currently undertaking their PhDs in the Cavendish Laboratory here in Cambridge. Tamala, let's start with you. What is it you're working on?
4: So my research involves galaxies that are very bright in radio waves. And I'm looking at jets from the centres of galaxies, so these active galactic nuclei. And I'm looking at how those jets interact with the environment of the galaxy and how it affects the galaxy's
1: evolution. So these are jets that are enormously energetic and spray out from the centre of the galaxy. Do we know yet why some galaxies have these and some don't?
4: Um, We think that this is a phase that uh, galaxies went through during their formation and we think that it's a very active core at that point. So there's a lot of material falling into a supermassive black hole and although the theory is as yet a bit undetermined undecided Uh, we think that very very strong magnetic fields in a sort of helical pattern along the axis of that black hole can actually accelerate some particles up into a jet that's collimated and then extends outwards for thousands of light years.
1: So that sounds not dissimilar to the theories that we're now generating about solar flares the fact that they get caught up in these spirals of magnetic field and these magnetic ropes, as it were, that exactly. end up throwing material out.
4: Yeah, it's very much a plasma and you get uh, magnetic fields entangled with electrons and protons and other charged particles.
1: And how are you actually doing that? What uh, what observation techniques are you using?
4: So my approach is sort of a combination of theory, so analytic models that involve some fluid dynamics as well as the um, incorporating magnetic field evolution, and then also Just looking at as many galaxies as possible. So, I have sampled about 800 of these uh, radio galaxies with jets and looking at the morphology and how the jets are interacting with the environment.
1: And we will come back to you in just a minute to uh, get you to answer some of our listeners' questions. Imogen, what is it you're working on?
4: So,
5: I'm looking at faint radio galaxies and I'm looking at them at a fairly high radio frequency and basically trying to find out a bit more about what these sources that we're observing actually are, whether they're classical galaxies and the radio emission that we're seeing comes from stars, or whether they're these active galactic nuclei and the radio emission that we're observing actually comes from that central active galactic nucleus.
1: So essentially you're just seeing some radio waves and you need to know where they're coming from. When we say faint radio galaxies, are these faint because they're so very far away or is there something occluding the radiation?
5: Um, generally they're faint because they're far away. I see these sources and I don't know, they're not resolved, I just see a point source. And so I don't know where the emission that I'm seeing is actually coming from. And so I'm trying to match my radio observations up with observations at a whole range of different wavelengths, optical and infrared, to try and get a bit more information about what these sources actually are.
1: So what are we actually hoping to learn by studying these faint radio galaxies?
5: Um, Well, we're hoping to learn a bit more about how galaxies evolve and also about the different types of galaxies that make up our universe.
1: Well, while we've got you both here, Tamla, let's come back to you first. We're going to pick your brains and see if you can answer some questions from our listeners. First of all, Jerry Drummond wrote in to say that there are a number of meteorites which astronomers classify as Martian. But how do we know that they definitely came from Mars?
4: So once we find a meteorite here on Earth, Take it into the lab and we start to study it. So we break it apart, we look at its composition, we look at the minerals that are in it. But one of the really interesting ways that we can tell that they're definitely from Mars is when they notice that there is a trapped air bubble inside the rock, they can look at the content of the gas and they can look for the different elements and how much of each element there is. When they've done this for some of the meteorites that they found here on Earth, they've actually realized that. This um, trapped air is very similar or identical, in fact, to the atmosphere that's on Mars. And we know about the atmosphere on Mars from the Viking mission and from more recent missions to Mars as well. And it's very, very distinct from the Earth's atmosphere. It's not a nitrogen oxygen composition. It's more of a carbon dioxide. It's got a lot more of the oxygen isotopes and noble gases. And we can say, well, this bubble of air was trapped in the rock when the rock was forming. And this is the same as the Martian atmosphere. So we know that they're a Martian meteorite.
1: Relying on the trapped gases seems a little bit um, well, a little bit like finding a needle in a haystack. We rely on there being trapped gases in there. We rely on those gases not having been affected by its journey from wherever it came from down to Earth. Can't we just look at the rock itself and the actual mineral composition of the rock? And can't that tell us that it's from Mars?
4: Um, it can tell us quite a bit. Certainly identifying that it's a meteorite in the first place is important. Um, Otherwise, you wouldn't pick it up from Antarctica or from various deserts where we find these. And those generally have some sort of fusion crust around the surface of it, and that's sort of a melted bit of the rock that, as it was entering the Earth's atmosphere, bits of the rock melted together and formed this glassy finish. That's very distinctive. Sometimes you see meteorites that have sort of micrometeorite pockets along the surface, and they've clearly been bombarded along their journey in space or um, from where they came from. The actual composition of the Martian meteorites is more familiar. Um, We we see that they are quite volcanic and often made of basalt. Um, So we do often find basalt here on Earth. But then when we look at the rock and we look beneath that fusion crust, we know everything beneath that surface should have occurred either in its journey to Earth or on Mars itself or wherever it came from. And so when you go beneath the surface, then you know that's fairly pristine. And what's intriguing is that You can look for signs of erosion and melting evidence beneath the surface, that fusion crust, and that tells you something about what happened on Mars, for instance. So the idea is um, something hit Mars, something relatively big, and it sprayed off a bunch of these rocks, these meteorites, that then started travelling through space. And in that process of impact, it probably um, created a bit of a glassy finish. And if you find that inside, then you know that's from the initial impact on Mars.
1: So not only can you do some very interesting geology of the meteorite itself, but actually it can give you a geological history of the planet it came from or the asteroid it came from.
4: Yes, and we can sort of um, very generally date these as well. So we can look for evidence of weathering as it sat here on Earth. And we say, well, okay, it's probably been here for X many years. And we can also look for signs um, of its journey throughout space So if it's bombarded by cosmic rays, it creates isotopes in the the actual content, the mineral content. And you can say roughly how many many years it's been traveling through space before it interacted with the Earth's atmosphere. And then adding those two ages together, you can say, well, it probably left Mars, you know, 700,000 years ago or a million years ago. But it is very general. But what's interesting, actually, is we look at... We've got about 60 um, Martian meteorites that we found. And when you look at all of them, they do tend to group into five to eight age brackets, sort of ejection times. So we know that maybe five to eight different collisions happened on Mars that then ejected these meteorites.
3: If they've got gas in them, Hmm. then surely they've come from somewhere with an atmosphere. Asteroids don't have an atmosphere. And so the, the obvious place is Mars. And the other thing I would stress is... An atmosphere is the same isotopic composition all over, whereas if you were to look at rocks, I'm sure if you go over the surface of the Earth, you'll find a whole variety of things because it's a solid, so I think
1: a key thing here is looking at gas. We may be talking about bits of Mars, but we are being very Earth-centric, aren't we? We're talking about things that have landed on Earth. We know that there are things that have landed on the surface of Mars as well, so... How do we know what the meteorites on the surface of Mars are actually made of?
4: So there are meteorites that have been found on the surface of Mars, and these have been found by, namely, Opportunity. Um, back in 2005, it found the first meteorite on a planet that wasn't our own. On, on, moon, on the Moon, there were two meteorites as well, I believe, that were found. So somewhat confusing, we've also found rocks on Mars that are not from Mars. And they've been discovered by chance by these rovers. The, the famous one was the first one called the Heat Shield Rock. It's an iron-nickel meteorite, um, which is very distinctly different from the Martian composition. It's it's a metallic meteorite. And as of September 2010, Opportunity has found a total of six of these meteorites um, on the surface of Mars, and it's still going strong. The recent arrival of Curiosity on Mars means that we should be finding much more of these anomalous rocks. And really, if you think about it, Mars should have high numbers of of meteorites because it has a thinner atmosphere. So more of these rocks can survive the fall through the atmosphere. And the weathering effects on Mars are much less severe. You don't have oxidation to the same levels. So the meteorites last for longer. So really, if we start exploring Mars to a greater extent, we should expect to find much more. Um, evidence from elsewhere in the universe.
1: And presumably we can then use the same dating techniques that we use for meteorites here on Earth to put together a a story, a history of the bombardment of Mars, just like we've been putting a history of the bombardment of Earth.
4: Yes, that is the hope. Although it is tricky when you're doing everything remotely. So of course, planetary geologists would love to have a sample from Mars brought back by spacecraft, but we'll have to wait a bit.
1: Well, thank you very much. Imogen, we also have a couple of questions that we thought we would put to you. This one's from John, and he said that given the vast size of the Milky Way, it's likely that the only practical method of exploring it will be with automated probes along the lines of the Voyager spacecraft, which, of course, has only just really got out of our solar system, so getting across the Milky Way is... Very, very ambitious. But he was wondering, with today's best propulsion technology, how long would a civilization need to last in order to welcome back a probe? So how long will the round journey take?
5: Well, obviously, that very much depends on the technology that you're using to propel this probe. Um, The center of the galaxy is about 8.3 kiloparsecs away from Earth, so that's 27,000 light years. And as we know, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. So even if we were able to design a spaceship which could travel close to the speed of light, it's going to take at least 54,000 years to get to the centre of the galaxy and then back again to report on what you've seen. However, currently we don't have the technology to design a spacecraft which can travel anywhere close to the speed of light. Um, You mentioned the Voyager space probes. They are travelling at about 17 kilometres per second. And if they continue to travel at this speed towards the centre of our galaxy, they'd reach it in 2.3 billion years' time. And that's even before they've turned around and come back again. But just because we can't travel to the centre of our galaxy and back again in, say, a lifetime, doesn't mean that we can't find out information about the centre of our galaxy. We can actually discover quite a lot about what the centre of our galaxy is like by observing it with telescopes. For example, by observing the orbits of stars very close to the galactic centre, we know that there's a supermassive black hole in the centre of our galaxy.
1: So even if we can travel at the speed of light, it'll take us 54,000 years. But what sorts of technologies might we have that that could get close to that or, or could even shave a bit of extra time off?
5: Well, there are several possibilities. One that was investigated back in the 60s is using something called nuclear pulse propulsion, which actually involves a series of explosions um, of atomic bombs, which are sort of fired off from the spacecraft. But obviously testing that kind of thing is not very feasible. Um, So this project has never come into fruition. And clearly a major challenge is actually powering um, a spacecraft for the period of time that it's going to take to make any of these kind of journeys. And so you're going to have to have a nuclear power source to power the instruments on board and the things that you require to communicate back to Earth.
1: (laughs) And of course, the longer it needs to go for, the more fuel it needs to carry. So the heavier it's going to be. So the harder it's going to be to get out of the Earth's orbit in the first place. So really, it is shaping up to be an insurmountable task.
5: It is looking very much like an insurmountable task. And that's actually why there hasn't been that much research done into how possible it is. I mean, you mentioned about carrying the fuel there is another possibility where you don't need to carry fuel which is this idea of solar sails where you could actually use radiation from the sun and other stars um, so both photons and emitted gas so essentially sail your way through the galaxy however that's not very quick so it is going to take you a very long time to get anywhere interesting.
1: This is Naked Astronomy with me, Ben Valsler, and with Dominic Ford. This month we're joined by Andy Fabian, Tamala Masil, and Imogen Whittam. We'll come back to them very soon. But first, Dominic, what have you seen in the space science news this month? Well, this is a paper that I've
2: picked up in the journal Science this month by Marty Atruk from Harvard University. And he's looking at two problems in our theories of how the Earth-Moon system formed. Now, one of the key results from the Apollo missions in the 1970s was that the Moon is made of very similar material to the Earth's mantle. And that's rather surprising because other rocky bodies in the solar system all have quite different compositions. So that points quite strongly towards a common origin for the Earth and the Moon. And the leading theory is that a small body impacted the proto-Earth about five billion years ago and this collision was so violent that it stripped off material from the Earth's mantle and these fragments formed a ring around the Earth and then these fragments accreted together and formed the Moon out of material from the Earth's original mantle and that's why they appear to be made of very similar material. The problem is when you actually run simulations of that event, what you find is that most of the material that ends up in this ring of fragments is actually fragments of the impacting body, which we would expect to have a different composition from the Earth itself. So you would actually expect the Moon to have a comparatively different composition to the Earth, even in in that model. Now, another problem with this theory has to do with the day length on the Earth. The Earth is a relatively slow rotator, turning once every 24 hours. Now, we think the day length has got longer over the last 5 billion years, and it was only about 4 hours back 5 billion years ago when this impact happened. But computational simulations of the formation of the Earth suggest a rotation period more like about 2 hours for material accreting together in a protoplanetary disk. So what Marty Etchouk has done is he's wondered if the Earth was spinning faster and this impactor came in exactly the right angle, could you engineer a collision such that most of the material that ended up in the Moon was from the Earth's mantle and not from the impactor? And what he's found is if there was what's called a retrograde collision where the Earth's surface was moving one way and the impactor came in in the opposite direction, there was a head-on collision between the surface of the Earth and this impactor, that would essentially bring this impactor to a standstill that wouldn't have escape velocity to escape the Earth's gravitational field. But you would kick up an awful lot of dust, essentially, which would form a ring of material predominantly from the Earth's mantle, and that could then go on to form the Moon. And you might find that that the Moon would then only about 15% contaminated with the material of the impactor. And and that's just about compatible with what we see for the competition of the Moon.
1: But what would then have happened to the impactor itself if it didn't have escape velocity to leave the system? Surely it would still be hanging around?
2: That's right. Most of the material of that impactor would be in the Earth's mantle. But the Earth, of course, is geologically active and its surface is, is continually changing. And so it would get mixed in, fairly thoroughly with the earth mantle and unlike the moon the earth is a very big place and so you can you can lose that material just by dilution in the earth's mantle and hence yes it would cause a small change in the earth's composition but completely compatible with the
1: observations. So he has run computer simulations that appear to create a situation that works and gives us the right composition. But the big question then is, if the Earth was spinning faster, have we had the right physical mechanisms ever since to spin the Earth up? Or would we now be going even faster than we are based on that starting point?
2: Yes, that's certainly an issue. But the second part of this paper actually shows that there's a new mechanism that people haven't considered before by which the Earth's rotational energy can be lost into its orbit about the sun. And the effect is that the Earth slows down its rotation whilst moving out slightly in its orbit about the sun. And and that seems able to explain actually how the Earth has come to have the long day length that it has.
1: So what's the next stage to try and actually collect some information to prove that this model is the case? How will we tell if the Earth has in fact been, had this breaking effect from its relationship with the Sun?
2: I think it's a very good point that with any computational model you want to be slightly sceptical because different groups often produce different results with, with their different computational codes. Now there are quite a lot of teams working on the problem of modelling the the Earth-Moon system formation, because it's an interesting problem, because it's all about where we as as humans came from and what the chances are that we might find other systems like it elsewhere in the galaxy and the the wider universe. So I think what will happen next is that other teams will run similar simulations and see if they can produce similar collisions in in their codes
1: and see whether all of these codes are pointing in a similar direction. Thank you, Dominic. Now, speaking of slightly speculative science, there's a mystery surrounding the amount of infrared light that bathes the universe. This is the so-called cosmic infrared background radiation. It's been detected by a number of different space-based telescopes, but it has clusters of higher intensity that actually can't be accounted for, considering the radiation from all known galaxies. And now a paper in the journal Nature suggests that this glow may be coming from orphaned stars. These are stars that were hurled out of their parent galaxies and are now resident in the local dark matter halo. Now, previous research had suggested that this radiation may have come from very faint, very distant background sources that are too far away to be individually distinguished by the telescopes, or that it might come from intermediate dwarf galaxies that slightly confound the results. And these two hypotheses would result in two very different distributions of the clumps of infrared. But previous studies had simply been too small to actually analyse the grand structure and see what the clumping is like. So with this in mind, Edward Wright of the University of California, Los Angeles and colleagues looked at data from the Spitzer Deep Wide Field Survey collected between 2004 and 2008. And after correcting for local sources of infrared and masking out radiation from very bright stars and galaxies, they were able to measure the spatial variability over fairly large areas. Now, their measurements did show some correlation with the distant galaxy hypothesis, but they found that neither of these two ideas was really enough to fit with their measurements. So they now propose that this extra infrared must be coming from intra-halo stars. These are stars that have been thrown out of their parent galaxies in violent interactions and mergers, and they now reside in the dark matter halo that surrounds each galaxy they do state that there's a number of future tests that are needed to further understand the contribution of intrahalo stars. And in a related Nature News and Views article, Andrea Ferrara from the Scuola Normale Superiore in Italy states that it will be interesting to see whether the author's proposal stands up to scrutiny. Ferrara adds that understanding the effect of intrahalo radiation will actually help us to study very early galaxies as they undergo a process of re at the end of the so-called Dark Ages of galaxy formation. And this is a very poorly understood chapter in the history of the universe. So speculative, but very, very interesting.
2: One thing that's interesting about this, John Rickshaw was telling us last month about infrared emission from star-forming regions where you have solid particles called dust, which is obscuring the visible light from these young stars and reprocessing it into thermal infrared emission. If you've got these stars which have escaped galaxies and are now in the halo, why are they producing infrared
1: rather than visible light? Well, the cosmic infrared background is, I think, analogous to the cosmic microwave background radiation in that it wouldn't necessarily have been emitted as infrared. So these weren't infrared sources in the first place. But the radiation that they did emit has been redshifted down into the infrared wave bands. So I think that the actual emission going on in the halos around galaxies is not necessarily, as John Richard was saying, being absorbed and then readmitted, I think it's just a process that these waves have been stretched in their travel throughout space.
2: I guess you're looking at the sum of infrared radiation produced in the local universe by perhaps dust-obscured star-forming regions on top of stuff coming from much more distant objects at high redshift where that is visible light which is being redshifted into the infrared band.
1: Yes that's quite right and that's exactly why we need to understand what these Methods and what these mechanisms actually are, so that we can start to tease apart what is locally produced infrared and what is redshifted, distant, more ancient sources. And we won't be able to tease that apart until we actually understand what's causing this clumping. Thanks, Ben. And of course, you can find more news on our website
2: at thenakedscientist.com dot com slash news. Now, Andy, I've been having a look at the New Star website, and I see I can. Ask the website actually what New Star is observing at the moment, and I see it's observing supernova 1987A, and that's actually a five-day observation. Are,
3: are all of New Star's observations that long, and, and why does it have to point for so long? Hmm. It's because the count rates are very low. Um, basically, a typical observation is 100 kiloseconds. Now, maybe um, not everybody knows that there's just over 80 kiloseconds in a day, 80,000 seconds in a day so 100 kiloseconds is just over a day but the satellite's in orbit around the Earth once every hour and a half or so and uh, the Earth gets in the way for half the time basically so basically you have to look for at least twice as long so a typical observation would be two and a half days and a five day observation means it's twice as long as a typical observation so this sounds perfectly normal to me So is that because
2: these X-ray sources are intrinsically very faint or because the energy is locked
3: up in a small number of individual photons? Exactly the last point. So that uh, given that that we're looking here at things that are 10 times more energetic, the photons are 10 times more energetic. So having a count rate which is a tenth of what you would have in the regular X-ray band means you're still getting the same flux, the same amount of power coming into your telescope
2: and of course the x-ray band is another factor of a thousand above visible light yes so if I take an image with a digital camera I get speckle on there yes. because I'm getting a limited number of photons but you've got that problem 10,000 times worse in your images yes absolutely
1: <laughs> what is it about uh, 1987a that's so appealing why does it get twice the typical viewing time I'm guessing it's something to do with the fact that uh, another satellite called Integral
3: um, has looked at it and published an image of it recently in the light of Titanium-44, which is a radioactive isotope of titanium which is formed in supernova explosions, and it gives rise to characteristic X-ray lines at about 80 kV. And I'm guessing, I don't absolutely know, I'm guessing that what they want to do with New star is actually get a much better and tighter hot handle on um, this uh, flux of Titanium-44 X-rays.
1: And what is it that sets the scientific priorities for New Star? Who Who decides what you're going to point it at? And, and what is it that will really stand out as a, a good, exciting bit?
3: Well, at the moment, it, it's a PI-led mission. That's PI is Fiona Harrison, um, and she's at Caltech. Um, she doesn't just by herself decide on everything, but she's a pretty powerful woman in this game. And basically, they've got a, a programme that was decided beforehand, but it's flexible in the sense that if they discover something and want to look at it again, they can do that. Or somebody comes along with a great idea, they'll go and observe that. And for about the first two years, it's the science team of new Star that's deciding where the observations are. It's basically because this is a new band. Nobody's really looked deep and this satellite is looking a hundred times deeper than anything before. So it's very exciting. So I, I think they're just responding to what's out there, and um, of course it's called the nuclear s- satellite and so forth. So that's probably why they want to understand radioactivity and understand nuclear synthesis in um, supernova explosions. You mentioned it's PI led for the first two years. What happened at the end of that time? Well, then they'll turn it into partly into a so-called guest observer. Program and therefore, one could write you know, anybody could write proposals to New Star and uh, they would be assessed by some panel of so called experts, and um, anybody can get some observing time with it. That's the way NASA tends to run its observatories and satellites. Now, obviously, some telescopes are very long lived, like the Hubble
2: Space Telescope, whilst others have limited lifetimes because they run out of, of coolant or, or whatever. Yes, will New Star? have a long life or or will it run out of of
3: consumables it's funded to run for just two or three years but everybody's hoping it will last much longer as i understand it it's going to it it doesn't have consumables that are going to stop it lasting for five years but you never know sometimes with these things you know a gyro breaks or something happens um but uh, fingers crossed it's just going to keep going andy you mentioned
2: earlier that New star can observe black holes we 've had a question here from David
3: Michaels who wonders how can energy actually escape a black hole The energy is not escaping from within the event horizon of the black hole. indeed, so far as we the outsider is concerned, nothing has ever fallen into the black hole because time and space stop at the event right this thing called the event horizon, this surface but basically what 's happening is material is moving very fast when it's close to the black hole. There are collisions, and it's the energy released in those collisions. So it's becoming so incredibly hot that it's not just red hot, it's actually producing X-ray heat. Yes, typically the temperatures of the material swirling around the black hole range from hundreds of thousands of degrees to uh, billions of degrees. It's interesting that you should have mentioned that time comes to a
2: stop at the event horizon, because David went on to ask, how does gravity
3: distort time? Well, it, it causes a time difference as you get deeper in what we call the potential well, as you go deeper in uh, the gravitational well. And it's an effect which was first measured on Earth in the 1950s and is actually rele- very relevant today if you use a sat-nav because there are the GPS satellites orbiting the Earth and through timing, you pick them up on your GPS detector, your satnav, and the timing enables your satnav to work out exactly where you are. Now, they have to take into account Doppler shifts due to the satellites moving around the Earth. But also, and it's more important, they have to take into account that the satellites are orbiting, the satellites have got clocks in them, and they're orbiting further out in the Earth's gravitational potential. And uh, you have to take into account the gravitational redshift, as we call it, between the satellite and your detector. In fact, it would be a blue shift because they're above us. If you didn't correct your satnav, I mean, of course, you personally don't do it. It's, it's in the software in the, in the sat-nav. But if it was not corrected for, it would, would be a time shift which would accumulate 10 kilometres error per day. So that means if you went on a journey of 12 hours you would end up being five kilometers out if you weren't taking general relativity into account. So that's this theory, which is nearly 100 years old, uh, about how time and space are distorted by gravity really having an impact on everyday life.
1: And how does that sort of thing scale up when we're talking about a black hole? Because obviously Earth has a limited, a finite <laughs> gravitational attraction, black holes. It's, it's incredible the amount of distortion it must cause. Do Absolutely. We, do we know actually how well it scales up and then if it does just break down within the event horizon? That's
3: what the theory predicts. Um, with observations I've been making of uh, material swirling around black holes and we we can see what are called spectral lines from the material, we can see those being shifted by a factor of two or more. So um, this is a very large time... I mean, it's a frequency shift, but it's equivalent to a time shift. So time is slowing down as we perceive it uh, around these black holes. So I have no doubt whatsoever that this gravitational redshift becomes very large. As you get closer and closer to the black hole, this effect becomes more and more acute. And essentially, um, the event horizon is where time just appears to stand still. And we've said that New Star is observing higher energy
2: x-rays than than previous observatories have done. I guess that's probing hotter material, which is closer in towards that black hole so is that testing general relativity
3: (laughs) in a more extreme environment it would be wonderful if you could and it's an interesting speculation you make there but actually i don't think we're going to look much closer in whilst you might imagine you'd be good to guess that maybe it gets hotter it's not as simple as that and uh, a lot of the very hot energetic stuff is actually from jets and stuff that's pushing out from it
1: some of the events that we've been talking about uh, looking at with new star seem to be the same sorts of events that people have been talking about looking for gravitational waves coming from so yes, black hole collisions and, and massive supernovas and so on are the data that we collect from new star going to help people to identify places to look because of course gravitational waves could be a real game changer in science if we can find them and reliably observe them Certainly, be very exciting. I
3: I don't think there's an immediate connection with gravitational waves. The way in which it might go, if there would be, that one of the things that gravitational wave observers want to see are two black holes spiralling together. Now, the black holes start out further apart, so you're looking for pairs of black holes, and uh, uh, very few of them have actually been observed. Some have been observed, but very few. And what a uh, new star might find is uh, places where there are pairs of black holes, particularly if they're these obscured regions. It's possible new star might find something like that. Uh, it's not clear. I think the exciting thing is looking in a wave band a hundred times deeper, every time it's happened in astronomy up until now, something new has emerged. And I'm looking forward to that something new.
1: <laughs> when should we expect to start seeing papers coming out using new star data?
3: There's a discussion at the moment about a nature letter, so um, I would imagine things will be done and submitted before Christmas.
2: This is Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford, and with Ben Vowsler.
1: Now, we often talk about planets being found in the habitable zone or Goldilocks zone around a star, where it's thought that conditions are right to keep water liquid and potentially harbour life. But now, new research from Sean McMahon at the University of Aberdeen suggests that there are other properties we need to think about, and even outside the Goldilocks zone, internal heat might be just enough to keep life flourishing. The problem is how to update
0: the concept of habitable zones, which are ranges of distances from stars where the temperature is right for liquid water on the surface of a planet, to take into account deep biospheres, which might be below the surface of the planet. Why, historically, have we always considered the surface temperature to be so important? Partly because it's an easier thing to predict, because it mostly depends on the amount of solar radiation coming in, whereas the temperature below the surface depends on all kinds of properties of the planet. Um, And also probably just because this concept was formulated in the early 90s. And since then, our understanding of life below the surface has has hugely increased. So maybe it just
1: wasn't uh, thought of as a significant problem at the time. And how much life is there beneath the surface? We do think of surface life, but there is life underground. How significant a contribution is it?
0: Oh, that's right. And it's quite poorly understood, but you can see estimates ranging from, say, 50% of all biomass on the Earth, plus or minus as much as 20% or even more. It's very poorly understood, but it's certainly
1: comparable significance to the surface biosphere. So when we're looking at planets, we consider the distance from the star, that gives us a good idea of how hot the surface will be at least. What are the other sources of heat? So there are four main ways that planets get hot on the inside.
0: The first one is the radioactive decay of certain elements that tend to get incorporated into rocky planets when they form. Uh, The second one is what's called tidal forces. So these are gravitational interactions between objects that stretch and squash them and generate frictional heat on the inside. Uh, the other two are so-called heat of accretion and heat of differentiation. They're kind of heat left over from when the planets formed and all the material was brought together and interacted and the planet formed. So those last two kinds of heat tail off over time. Obviously, radioactivity declines over
1: time as well, but it tends to take longer. So there's a lot to consider when working out how warm a planet is likely to be. How do you combine all of this to give you a good idea of whether a planet really might be habitable subsurface? Well, almost all of the heat is, is
0: heat from radioactive decay. What we've actually done here is to assume that other planets have essentially that they produce heat um, at the same rate per unit mass as the Earth does. So that way we take into account all these different sources of heat and radioactive heat production and probably also uh, uh, the other kinds of heat production approximately scale with mass. So if you double the mass, you double the heat production. So we've just maintained that assumption throughout our work.
1: And that then gives you all of the calculations you need to, to produce a model that will tell you, say, for a given star or for a given planet, whether it's likely to be habitable or not.
0: Yeah, and also at what depth below the surface you would expect, if any, to find uh, to find liquid water and hence possibly life.
1: So... Let's just say I'm using one of the space satellites we have at the moment. I've identified a planet, and I want to know, so I can tell the world whether I think there's likely to be life on there or not, what figures do I need to put into your model? Well, you need to know the distance from the
0: star, and it certainly helps if you know the mass or radius of the planet. It'd be even better if you get the density of the planet, so we can confirm that it's made out of the same kind of stuff as the Earth.
1: And it must matter whether it's a rocky planet like Earth or a gas giant or an icy body like we have on the outside of the solar system, do the same calculations still apply? You have to vary the calculations slightly for for icy planets. Obviously, if a larger
0: proportion of the planet is ice, that means that a smaller proportion of it is rock, so there's going to be less of that heat production by the elements in the rocks. If you're looking at a particular planet and you want to know whether it's icy, you can sort of guess from how far away it is from its star, because we know that planets further away tend to have more ice in them, and you can sort of get some idea as well from its mass. So if it's a very big planet, if it's in the same sort of size range as Jupiter, then we're not going to, to treat it as a rocket planet. But if it's more like the Earth and it's fairly close to its star, that's a good sign that it's probably a rocket
1: planet. And how much do you think this extends our interpretation of the habitable zone? How much bigger do you think it's likely to get?
0: It's difficult to be precise, and a lot depends on whether, how similar other solar systems and planets turn out to be to our own. But certainly several fold. habitable zones for biospheres a few kilometres below the surface are several times larger than habitable zones just considering the surface.
1: We always think of these habitable zones as being halos around a star. But we also know that solar systems are quite uh, destructive environments. Occasionally there'll be collisions and problems where planets actually get flung out away from their star completely. Knowing that there might be residual heat, does this actually mean that these rogue planets could potentially be sites of liquid water and therefore possibly contain life? So, certainly, people have already
0: speculated that there might be these so called rogue planets with liquid water on their surfaces because some of them might form with that sort of exotic, dense atmospheres. We don't have to do anything exotic like that. We can have a planet that doesn't have any atmosphere at all that might still have liquid water at some depth within, say, the top 10 kilometres of its surface, as long as it's large enough and produces enough heat, which we think is likely. And that means we can we can have these so-called rogue planets receiving no energy from their stars at all, so they're in completely interstellar space, but they still have enough heat inside for subsurface liquid water.
1: Now, sadly, at the moment, we can't get out to these exoplanets. We can't drill down through ice to see if there are subsurface water and possibly subsurface life. Are there any other markers or indicators that we can use to look at a planet from afar and say so we think there probably is liquid beneath the surface?
0: So in our own solar system we we found that planets and moons with water in the subsurface um, do express it in various ways at the surface. So for instance uh, we see these great plumes of ice coming out of Enceladus which represent subsurface liquid water that's being erupted and you might also find atmospheric signs of a, of a deep biosphere. For exoplanets, it's a bit more difficult. You you might hope that using spectroscopic techniques, you could possibly detect similar kinds of plumes or atmospheric signs of a deep biosphere. But at the moment, that's certainly a problem with with our model, that it actually might just be unfalsifiable for the time being.
1: So what's the next step now? How do we refine the models further? How do we turn this model into a tool for predicting the likelihood of subsurface water? I think we
0: need to improve the quality of the observations, particularly of exoplanets. We need to improve our models for understanding how solar systems form and how uniform they really are in terms of their composition and sizes of planets and so on. Once we have a, a more detailed model of what planets tend to be like, how they tend to form, how similar they might be or not be to, to our, our own solar system, then we can constrain the likely depths of liquid water and perhaps biospheres on a typical
1: planet much more precisely. Sean McMahon from the University of Aberdeen. And that's near enough all we've got time for on this month's Naked Astronomy. Just one more question for Imogen Whittam, and this one's come from Mohammed Al-Hakim. He asks, why is gravity weaker at the centre of the Earth?
5: Well, as we know, all objects that have mass produce a gravitational field, and this obviously includes the Earth. And when we calculate the effect that the Earth's gravitational field has on its surroundings – We say that all of the Earth's mass acts at its centre because this makes the calculations easier. But in reality, each individual little part of the Earth produces its own gravitational field. And what we feel is actually the combination of all of these gravitational fields. And so as you go inside the Earth, some of the Earth's mass is above you. And therefore, the gravitational field from this part of the Earth is pulling you up, while the mass of the Earth that's below you is still pulling you down and towards the Earth's centre, So the total force that you feel pulling you down will actually be less than on the Earth's surface. So as you move closer to the Earth's centre, more of the Earth's mass will be above you and therefore pulling you up, and this will cancel out with some of the force from the mass below you that's pulling you down. So the total gravitational force that you experience will get less and less as you move closer to the centre of the Earth. So when you actually reach the centre of the Earth, there'll be the same amount of the Earth's mass above you pulling you up as below you pulling you down. So the total gravitational force that you feel pulling you up and down will cancel out. So you'll feel no gravitational force at all. However, of course, there's going to be a huge pressure at the centre of the Earth, which is caused by the weight of all of the rock that's above you. So although you're not going to experience a gravitational force, there's going to be a huge pressure. And in fact, the pressure in the centre of the Earth Is 3.6 million times the pressure at the Earth's surface.
1: Now, we've had asked on the naked scientists a few times what would happen if you could theoretically core a tunnel through the Earth. It sounds like, from the gravitational perspective at least, that if you were to jump into this hole, you would end up just being able to step out of the other end because all of the speed you'd built up travelling towards the centre would be cancelled out by the gravity pulling you back as you came up the other side, and you'd very neatly and comfortably step out of the hole.
5: Well, what you might actually find is you'll probably get oscillations, so you're going to fall right down almost to the other side of the Earth and then you'll be attracted back towards the centre but will overshoot and then you'll get attracted back towards the centre again. So you're just going to oscillate up and down through the centre of the Earth.
1: So rather than a very quick way to jump to China, say it would instead be a nightmare of being trapped, constantly bouncing back and forth inside the Earth.
5: Um, Yes, while being very hot.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you very much, and thank you ever so much for joining us. That was Imogen Whittam, and before her, Tamela Masil and Andy Fabian. They've been helping us to answer your questions and filling us in on the latest in space science. Now, that's it for this month's Naked Astronomy. If you have any space science questions that you would like to ask, then do send it in to us at astronomy at com or tweet at Naked Scientists.
2: And don't forget to listen out for the Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. You can find all this and more on our website at thenakedscientist.com
1: slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by Dominic Ford and me, Ben Valsler, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash
3: astronomy.